that basically Poland got invaded. <laughs> Stop looking at me like that. Um, <laughs> France and Britain had been like, yeah, we'll, we've declared support for you on, on September 3rd. Um, I should say because like Poland got invaded on September 1st, like two days later, that's when France and Britain was like, okay, obviously you need our help. It's much harder for them to get their resources over there though. Mm -hmm. So what can they do much other than call on Germany to withdraw? Because, I mean, it's kind of like what we're seeing now in Ukraine. Like, everyone's yeah. like, get out of there. Like, they're telling Russia, like, yeah. get out of there. But what are you going to do? They don't want to yeah. start another world war. But they're also mm -hmm. like, this is a blatant disregard of like, accords you, you and can't, rights. You can't do that. You can't do that. But also, we could literally, like, crash the world economy, start World War Three. Mm -hmm. We really don't want to get aggressive, but we're kind of getting to that point. I know. Because it's like, how far do you let it happen before certain things become necessary? Which yeah. Is, which is all politics really, is really is one huge thought. game of chicken. Yeah, no, literally. It's it's which is what Putin's doing because he's like, who's gonna who's gonna stop who's me? Gonna stop me? Who they wants to be the one to fire the first exactly. bullet? Exactly. Yeah. They don't want another World War Three, so who's gonna stop me? Yeah, which is BS that he can't just like honor. I know. Like it would world be nice. Accepted it? conventions. It would be nice, wouldn't it? Yep, that have managed to stave off another world war for eighty years. But yep. I guess that's wishful thinking yep it would it would be nice um so of course germany just kind of like ignores it and it's like what are you gonna do um and as they invade poland there's shenanigans shenanigans i should just say lots of little shenanigans and they f see some setbacks and I mean, Germany, as they move through Poland, they, they hit a few roadblocks, some bad conditions from weather and stuff. At one point, though, there's a plane crash with German plans on it, uh, and it crashes in Belgium, which is a neutral country at the time. And sorry, it didn't crash in Belgium. Sorry. It crashed and the plans they had on board were about an invasion into Belgium, gotcha. which is a neutral country at this time. Uh -huh. And Hitler's kind of like, ah, dang it. They may have found out. Hey, guys, uh, can you pretend you didn't see that? It's kind of like Zimmerman telegram. It's like, <laughs> yeah. hold on, everyone. Hey, don't don't look at that. <laughs> um, the note that we were passing, it's like when the teacher picks up a note and reads it out to the class, and you're just hoping it's not some really terrible, <laughs> awkward, like, will you go out telegram. with me? Check yes, check no. Oh, my God. We got to do that. We got to do the Zimmerman telegram. Oh, I know. It's, it's, so, it's such quality meme material. It really is. Um... But Hitler's like, well, I gotta adjust plans now. I gotta get more aggressive. They kind of know that we're planning on it. And with some encouragement from some of his higher-ranked men, they kind of get this idea like, hey, hey, France. We like France. <laughs> and guess what's there? Just the Maginot Line and a big forest that no one wants to cross through and some neutral countries that probably won't fight back if we try to go through them first. So they're already like concocting different pan plans and looking at their options. During this time, there's something called the phony war going on. It's literally called the phony war. Um, mm -hmm. Not like bring, bring, like bring, bring, banana phone, phony, but like fake phony. You know, I, I think that Everyone assumed you meant a fake. Okay, thing. good. But thank you for the clarification. Yeah. Mm -hmm. clar yeah, you're welcome. Yes. So yes. during <laughs> the phony war is this brief attempt from the French to kind of push into the Saar region of Western Germany. 
This is also going on during September of 1939, around the time that they see the aggression in Poland. I think it was kind of their attempt to be like, we'll push back a little bit. You're not getting any closer to us like you did with Poland, but it's not really a maintainable attempt. The best they can, that France can do is kind of dig into where they are and hold it in towards the Saar region and everything. Again, I think they're really, really hesitant to, I mean, they are, I don't think, I know they talk about how they were really, really trying their best not to start another world war. Mm -hmm. But all it's doing is making tensions worse and worse and worse because then you've got people who are obviously waiting for the like other shoe to drop, just waiting to shoot each other. Um, some people literally call it the sitting war because they're just mm. sitting there waiting for the other person to make a move first. I have heard that term. The sitting war? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I hadn't heard that one actually. Really? Uh-uh. No, I've heard I'd heard it called the phony war. war. I've never heard the phony war. Hmm. That's weird. Interesting. <laughs> weird. That's weird. Okay. Um... So, remember how earlier I talked about the Maginot Line covering just the brunt front of the straight German-France mm-hmm. French border? Right. It didn't reach all the way to the French and Belgian border. Um, it's got it's got really thick, rough landscape up there, and they were kind of like, "Well, no one's gonna, no one's gonna attempt that. It's like physically impossible. So we're just gonna put push the Maginot Line up to where we can and leave it at that." Uh-huh. And Someone suggests, well, why don't we try to go just around the Maginot Line? What? Around? Around? You mean you can go around? Around the wall that just ends? Hey, you know, it doesn't surprise me that Donald Trump didn't know this history. I mean, you're not wrong. Like, that's what always cracks me up when people are like, we're going to build a wall. And I'm like, how is it going to go into the ocean? Are you going to literally like yeah, to the like, equator? I don't, I don't understand. Okay. You know, you can go around those, right? If you walk long enough. Um, but their plan was to go through, like I said, neutral countries that weren't going to fight back as much. Um, there's the, the forest part then that really rough architecture, or, architecture geography that i was talking about it kind of spreads over the intersection of germany france and belgium it's got some awful hills lots of trees when i say awful hills they're probably beautiful um they're just awful if you're trying to get a tank around and lots of trees not much of nature is built to it's not tank tank friendly tank through yeah that checks out yeah it's not tank friendly what can i say Mm -hmm. um the trees are really thick in there, so it's just not a good place for your military. I mean, your air support can't see below the trees, so they don't know if they're, like, bombing the right areas, etc. It's just, you know, everyone's like, no one's going to move through the forest, because who would? So, Germany also knew that the best way, and this had been kind of proven to them within the first few tactical attempts they made at it, their best bet is going to be Blitzkrieg or lightning war. Mm. It's that famous term. Mm -hmm. Blitzkrieg really focuses on a quick hit at a crucial spot. So that tank, like a really quick, fast pop in one one place. And then your tanks, your artillery, aircraft, infantry, all that, they follow up with their own smaller attacks really quickly and essentially, your attempt is that your enemy is so disoriented 
that you can basically corral them into one space and force them to surrender. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like you when you watch a sheepdog run through the middle of a herd mm. and all the sheep are like scattered and it takes a second for them to figure out where they go. And in that time, that same dog can like loop around and get mm-hmm. them all corralled back together before they even realize what they're doing. So very um, effective as they proved early on. Um, and with the different communication methods that they're using in this time period, it was really hard for the allied groups to recover quickly enough to process who's who, Who's firing at us? What direction are they coming from? How many troops do they have? Are they in tanks? Are they in the sky? Et cetera, et cetera. And it doesn't help that Germany had equipped each of their individual field units with radios, which is not unheard of, but it's like, it's more than the British or the allied forces were working with um, Mm -hmm. at that time because they were not able to communicate and the Germans were like really tight knit Mm -hmm. following order to order. So they... It's not fair to say they didn't have a hope, but Blitzkrieg was effective when you have communication and they don't. Yeah. So, um, this, this movement into Belgium and Holland, um, as Germany moves, the goal, the goal was always to get to France. They knew that it was just best to go through neutral countries. And this is all called, um, Case Yellow. It's called, it's the name of the mission. The Germans start hitting... Belgium and Holland um, on May 10th of 1940 with air raids and eventually the ground troops come in and try to kind of disorient them again with that blitzkrieg kind of tactic. The attempt, the hope, was that the allied forces would also be distracted with this massive movement and would move their best forces into northern France and Belgium and kind of close in on the sides uh it's called like a pincer move okay um like like the pincers on a on a spider the six harry potter movie is what <laughs> i think you, of because are you quoting the I six am. harry potter movie not to right mention now? the pincers <laughs> yeah that um that's part of that movie i know well and i always want to say pinchers and i know that's not it, it's pincers but it, it's just weird so yeah this is called a pincer move so they're going to try and pull all like distract and pull all those forces to come attack them in the northern side while going in with if you can envision it it's really hard to describe this because i cannot physically see you guys i'm talking to you over Mike, <laughs> but they're going to try and basically close in around them on both side but this code, this case yellow is the n- upper above them. That pincer, that lobster claw moving in on the top. Okay. Um, tell me if this is not making sense to I, them. I'm, 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 I'm trying to describe it. I'm, I'm such a visual person that when I was looking at all the maps for this movement, I was like, okay, this makes sense. And I was like, well, how am I supposed to explain this without a visual component? Um, so, yeah, this is the upper arm moving through um, the Netherlands and Belgium. These countries, again, had been neutral, and they obviously realized that Germany would pose an active threat to them, and a little too late, they're kind of like, hey, allied forces, um, could you help a little bit? Like, could we, we don't really want to, like, break our neutrality, but we would really like some help, um, against these people who are currently invading us to get to you nonetheless. Uh So I don't feel like that was an unfair explanation or expectation. I I always heard it as, um, not Belgium asking for help, but like allies getting involved because Belgium was technically like a British 
ally, something like that. Like Belgium it may, and England it very way, had yeah. a relationship, and that's why England got. They involved. may have had a previous relationship that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, because I mean, when you know. look at the conventions that were established after World War One, they're all tied to each other. Really, it was mm-hmm. kind of like a trigger law falling yeah. into place. Like mm-hmm. if someone got attacked, you inherently kind of went to the help them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I'm trying to describe is that they didn't really want to break their neutrality. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to like piss off Germany more, but they acknowledged like, okay, the allies are our friends right now. Gotcha. So it's kind of that like alliance, but without that like whole official, it's kind of like um, all the countries that are like, Hey, maybe we should all join NATO right now with mm-hmm. in the wake of Ukraine, how they're like, we obviously don't support this, but like some of them are or are not officially parts of NATO. It's kind of like mm-hmm. that. I think from gotcha. what I was reading, yeah. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, G- Belgium in, has alliances and they're kind of like, okay, I guess we should go help our buddies over there because also if they get through our buddies, they're going to be on our doorstep real yeah. fast. Yeah. Um, Germany still has a bit of a leg up though, because they moved in so fast and they were moving so quickly and effectively through their air raids that it was devastating. And they managed to get to one of the key strategic forts in Belgium within a few days by the 14th of May, Germany is gaining control. And by the 15th, Nether- Netherlands have come, like surrendered. They're mm-hmm. like, yeah, no, we weren't prepared. They didn't exactly have British and French troops, that enough of them there to back them up quickly enough. Gotcha. But that did mean that in the time that the Belgium and the Netherlands and all that thought they might be able to hold them off, they had been sending all of the French troops north. They'd already started mobilizing them, hoping that they could drive the Germans back from there. Which leaves certain other areas of French, a French, French, <laughs> ranch dressing of the French um, war Texas. front. <laughs> I know, right? The French war front is not completely um, staffed at the moment. Yeah, like, the register yeah. has been closed. The yeah. attendants are off duty. Um, meanwhile, that was the top pincer kind of swooping in over. Now we're going to swoop under. We've got German forces moving in the southern areas um the on the 10th at the same time as the northern german forces moving through the netherlands and belgium the southern german forces had tried to sneak three sneak 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 there we go uh-huh. um yeah. <laughs> through areas of luxembourg and uh, uh, parts of belgium the whole thing in the north keeps the allied forces focused enough that the Germans who were like, hey, you know how they just went around the line? We're going to um, play a game of surprise peekaboo and we're going to move through the forest of Ardennes. Because um, no one was like fortifying it or even prepared because why would you waste military power yeah. on yeah. a forest that yeah. you can't drive tanks through? Yeah, that's but, also, I feel like, warranted. Yeah. You know, that seems like a calculated... It was okay. a calculated risk. Did yeah. they calculate correctly? No. no. But it was a calculated risk. <laughs> it was calculated nonetheless. Yeah. They make it through the forest so quickly, though, that the French don't have, like, any time to recover and react barely. Um, they make it across the, across the river, I think it's pronounced Muse, by Muse, by May 13th. I'm sorry, Kaylee is the one that took French... I it's took okay. I took German. Um, I just realized that this is a proxy war between you and me right now. Oh my god! <laughs> You're um, right. <laughs> but guess what, Cat? I win. In eventually, end, you win the battle. But right now, I win the war. I have the high ground, and I know you don't watch Star Wars, but 
that was a really great reference. Um, I've seen that part at least. Okay. Well, I've good. seen I've seen memes of that part. You're breaking my heart. Okay. Um, <laughs> this means that the for- allied forces have basically people on either side of them, on above and below them, and they've caged them in pretty effectively. The best way out is west for them. Um, and I should note. I know I talk about this book multiple times in this podcast, but that um, book Blitzed by Norman Oler that's yeah. about the Purbiton. Like it's so interesting, but that's also how they managed to get through the forest because they were so <laughs> messed up. On, they were, they were, no, they were like straight up messed out and like, yeah. And you listen. They didn't have to sleep. Like that was the whole point of like Perfitin was that you didn't have to uh-huh. sleep. You could do a lot of things on drugs. Yeah, and they like attribute they like actively attribute now the success of that travel through the That's forest on the fact crazy. that they didn't need to sleep for like forty eight hours. They were completely alert and it like oh everyone God. was like, Why aren't they stopping? They haven't stopped coming, they're not resting and the rest the like the Allied forces were like they just don't stop. And the Germans are over here, like driving tanks through a forest across Jeez. rivers and like their own, like MacGyvered bridges. And they're just like riding the high life. Quite literally the quite high literally. life. Quite literally. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, I, I will always recommend that book because it's so good. But if you read Blitzed, it's, it, it talks about that a bit, how we can attribute some of that movement through the forest with <laughs> just straight up mess. Um, yeah. Uh, so at this point, they've the pincer, the pincer um, tactic is proving to be very, very helpful for the Germans. It takes them a week on that um, below the the forces invading below the Allied troops from Germany. It takes them about a week to reach the English Channel, um, which is along the river Somme. Is that pronounced Somme? It's a uh... S-O-M-M-E, the river Somme. 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 Um, So you can tell that no one was ready for them to move that fast. I sometimes wonder if Germany was prepared to make it through that fast or if they got there and they're like, oh, wait, (laughs) what now? We have to do stuff now. (laughs) Yeah, like, oh, okay. Well, here we go. So it's not just British and French allied forces that are caught in this little pincer encirclement. It's the Dutch forces. It's, it's Belgium. It's British, everyone. And it's forcing them further, further back in this tightening pocket along the coast. And the only way to evacuate them at this point is by the sea. And don't forget that along with our troops, this is a heavily populated civilian area. Mm -hmm. Like there are, I shouldn't say heavily populated because it's not as heavily populated as like some of the other major cities, but like it's, it's people. people. There. Yeah. yeah. Um, Civilians. Yeah. And so they're caught in all this and they basically can't organize a way out fast enough and do it safely without massive casualty losses that would be not worth the price they would have to pay. And so by the 26th of May, when the Germans have pretty much taken over every French and Belgian port on the river, except for um, Dunkirk, the Allied forces are like, okay, we have to evacuate. It's now or never. This is it. Um, Seeing no other way out, Belgium had officially surrendered on May 28th. Um, That means that by June 4th, Germany considered Case Yellow to have been successful. Operation Dynamo quickly falls into play here. Um, 
some of you might recognize the events of Operation Dynamo by the movie Dunkirk. Yes, Harry Styles is in it. Um, <laughs> but so is a phenomenal cast and also a phenomenal score, phenomenal movie. I guess I know what my recommendation will be today. Um, <laughs> but they quickly realized that with no way out and water rescue being like the only option, they're going to have to call on their ships. Well, the tricky thing is you don't keep, keep all your ships in one place close by and easily accessible in wartime. So they're like kind of struggling to figure out how they're going to evacuate this many people mm -hmm. out of an area this quickly um, from this different, this many different troops, nations, all that jazz. It's the very end of May in 1940 on the 26th when they officially kick off Operation Dynamo. It is a massive effort um, under the commander of the Royal Navy in Dover to rescue as many of the soldiers as possible. For nine days, every available vessel, civilian, naval, merchant, every ship alike is called upon to go back and forth under extremely heavy German fire from the land to sea to evacuate these soldiers. We're talking about literally just people who own boats getting mm -hmm. called out in their in their little sailboats their little pleasure boats like yeah. called out to yeah. help evacuate as many of these people as quickly as possible literally being shot at by by german planes and military mm -hmm. so it's they're asking civilians to you know risk their lives for this and a lot of them do um there were over 900 ships on the water going back and forth trying to rescue as many of them as possible and some of the ships were too big to get to the land so the smaller ships would act as ferries and move troops back and forth and get you know load up these huge ships before they set off mm -hmm. um some of them were brave enough to literally go straight up to the land load as many soldiers and then just head back up to the sea hoping yeah. that the germans didn't get to them first um the casualties unfortunately did mount very very quickly a lot of ships sank, um, civilian and naval and merchant. Um, many troops were lost, but by the time they called it off on the morning of June 4th, they had rescued over 330,000 Allied troops and gotten wow. them back to England. 330,000? Yeah. 30,000? 30, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, unfortunately... Even though the Germans didn't capture the soldiers from Dunkirk, they have, over the last few weeks, captured somewhere around a million Allied prisoners. Mm. Um, civilians who had taken up arms, official soldiers, the like. It was, this had been a brutal few weeks, and it was only saved from being much, much worse by Operation Dynamo. Um, and I believe it is one of the biggest civilian, well, I believe it's one of the biggest evacuation, uh, biggest and fastest evacuations in military history. That checks out. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure. At least it was at the time, I want to say. Um, yeah. I trust you. But mm, don't trust me ever. Um, okay, they do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Please trust me. We have a friendship. I guess I'm leaving. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. Um, so all, when all that's been going on, of course, there's multiple fronts in every war. During all of this happening in France, France, oh my God, I can't talk. You got this. In France and Belgium, as all of this has been going on, 
Germany has also been making their way all the way up to Denmark and Norway by April. This one was a very strategic move, um, but it was also a protection of their resources because during wartime, your resources are more imperative than ever, especially Germany, who's using this war as a sort of... It's nowhere near what we're talking about industrialization in, like, early, like, England and stuff like that when we talk about the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. But Germany was manufacturing at a rate during this, like, crazy. Um, That was also part of Hitler's overall desire to expand and to like Lebensraum and moving like they had to be producing at a much higher rate than almost mm-hmm. ever before. So their resources are more important than ever. And they needed their Norwegian ports under their own control because that's where Sweden was sending them their iron ore. And um they Germany knew that if the Royal Navy got there first, they would completely control the North Atlantic and would end up blockading Germany out of their own trade route. So Germany is like aggressively vying for that space. Um And it wasn't a very long or drawn-out process for Germany to get there and take control. Denmark ended up surrendering on the very day that Germany invaded. Mm. Like, they knew. It was... Mm -hmm. After watching what happened in Belgium, I'm sure they were like... Yeah. In Poland, I'm sure they were like, okay, we can't even... If we value our civilians... And they don't have a huge military, so they're like, if we value our civilians or anything, it's not... Mm -hmm. It's not worth it. Um yeah, so some of the Allied troops did try to get to Norway, but they couldn't make it in time. Um, and by the 10th of June, Germany had control of that as well. And June 10th is also the day that Italy decides to throw its <laughs> throw its hat in the ring and is like, okay, we're going to officially declare war on Britain and France now. <laughs> Mussolini was like finally ready to play his hand. I don't... What a guy. Yeah. yeah. Not a fan. Um, no. But... <laughs> He had been kind of holding back a little bit at that point. He was, I think he really wanted to test the waters a little bit and be like, hey, you're going to screw this up or are we going to like go for it? Mm-hmm. But he, when he finally did, you know, push into the um, Axis powers, I don't think he was entirely prepared. They ran into a few like kinks here and there that prevented them from, you know, sh- outright going with like German troops to try and attack and invade Mm -hmm. so they don't play as much of a role in the actual fall of france itself they become very active you know as you move on through the other countries but as far as um their effect that they had relative to germany it's 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 low-key tactical stuff um but they had that that declaration of official war with Britain and France is huge because yeah. it's really it's no longer like hey Germany is our aggressor we are having problems everyone king up on Germany it's like no, oh we're in we're in a war now. yeah we yeah. have ally powers and we have Axis powers like we can, on the one hand it's really scary but on the other hand it enables a lot of like actual mm-hmm. things to start happening yeah more war tactic type yeah. like mm-hmm. okay this is how we have to treat this now this is not yeah. Yeah. Instead of just trying to avoid war. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're all in, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, Germany has been, like, ravaging France on their way. Um, they've... I'm trying to visualize the map in my head. They're up... A, not concentrated in the north, but they've done the most damage up there. And this is when they initiated the part of their plan called case red they already did case yellow that worked they were managed to you know crowd them all in shove them off the land had to Mm -hmm. they took like a million 
you know, prisoners and everyone else had to evacuate. But this is this next move is case red. The Germans plan was to move south into France, allowing them to take Paris. This would be a significant defeat, both on the tactical and moral front. And I don't think we as well, that's not fair. I can say that we of Americans have probably experienced some of that. Um, during 9-11, the, the understanding the moral implications of losing, like, your capital or your huge cultural mm-hmm. centers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like when it came to the bombings in, uh, in Tokyo and, well, in the atomic bomb and all that. And who was it? The pre- Which president was it that said... Ooh. I cannot remember which president it was at the time, but there was. But it's the it's the Kyoto thing you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, like they'll never forgive us forgive us if we take Tokyo. Yeah, because or Kyoto, Kyoto. Because it's a World Heritage site. site. Yeah, it's like yeah. one of the it's got some of the greatest like history mm-hmm. and culture in the world. And they knew when they were like looking at targets to bomb later in the war with the atomic bomb and everything, they literally said, "You can't do that. The world will never forgive us if we bomb." this city because of its cultural heritage and importance Mm -hmm. and so it really goes to show like they acknowledged how important some of these cities were for the moral implications of it i mean Mm -hmm. we see the monuments men show up later in the war too and that's like you can see like their whole job was to save culture yeah um but that's the germans plan is to move and take Paris because they know that once they have Paris not only tactically do they win but like morally that France is not going to be able to fight back the same if they can get a hold of France mm-hmm. or Paris sorry so on June 5th they move across the Somme and how do you I looked up a pronunciation of this river and I feel like my I, I couldn't I could not say it A-I-S-N-E the I I-N? A-I-S-N-E the Ain River yeah it's probably some, the Ain the Ein? The I would Ein? say Ein. Okay. The S in the, the S threw me off and I was like, I know I'm going to pronounce it wrong. So I'm sorry if you're French or know yeah, how I to say this. I don't know if that's exactly right, but that would be my best guess. Okay. Ein. Well, the two rivers are next to each other. Mm-hmm. And the, Germany was like, yeah, we've got to move across those. Um, the French front along those rivers had been named the Weygand Line. W-E-Y-G-A-N-D. That feels a little French to me. It was, maybe it was like the Weyand Line. Um, but my Texan self is going to say Weygand. Um, but they had lost so many soldiers and fortifications from the fighting. And I mean, again, all their forces had been concentrated in the North that they couldn't hold the rivers on their own. Um, they had managed to find a little less than 50 divisions to cover that front, that wagon lined, um, which they took from the Maginot line, some of them. So the Maginot line is being held up by like 17 divisions at this point. Um, which is not looking great for the Maginot line. Um, and the Germans are slowly able to move into the north and west central areas of the country. Now they're in France. Like they're, they've got a good foothold there, which means they are coming up behind the French and the Maginot line as well. They're like, they're not going to be able to hold a little, a little fortification line when they're being attacked by the Germans on both sides from their front and their back, it's not going to work. So, um, after their defeats and having to evacuate Dunkirk and the entirety of case yellow being so devastating a loss for them, the French army is struggling to hold their ground. And I think they're starting to acknowledge at this point that it's going, this is going to be a make or break point for them. Mm -hmm. They'd gotten a little bit of backup from Britain and Canada, 
but it's like a crack in the dam. It's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and the pressure is going to break it worse and worse until it just breaks. And that's exactly what happened. Once they got and made headway into France, um, they started taking individual fortresses along the Maginot Line one at a time. Some of the fortresses actually managed to hold out until um, July. But such early aggression in the center of France, of France and getting past the rivers and everything, um, they got to Paris and they just took it on, jo- mm-hmm. on June 14th. Um, it was obviously clear to many of them at this point that it wasn't about, you know, Paris anymore. It was about decimating the French armies that had been left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, which is terrible because some of them had been trapped out by the Maginot Line with, like, no no chance at retreat or to be taken out. Um, which had to be a terrible, terrible, slow realization yeah. for them. Yeah. Um, but it was a nail in the coffin for all of France when Paris fell. Germany had almost completed its conquest at that point and as they close in marshal henry patain steps up as prime minister and replaces paul reynaud he plans to sign an agreement of armistice with the nazis officially paris is declared an open city at this point which means that they're not even going to try to defend it in the hopes that it it will minimize the damage done to Mm -hmm. Paris um and there's very famous I think Hitler only ever was actually in Paris like once um but there's that very famous photo of him standing on top of the Eiffel Tower Mm -hmm. um and he did like they of course they were this was a huge moral boost for the Germans to oh look how quick it took less than two months to take the cultural center of Europe and it was it was huge for the Germans. It was huge for their morale. They were pushing past land, and now they had access to the rest of Europe pretty easily. Um, so it's kind of... I've heard multiple takes on this, on how France opened itself up to the Nazis and Germany. And I think that concept of open city kind of alters how we see it. Because, I mean, I'm not saying that the French were like all super excited that Germany was here, obviously. Um, But that concept of an open city, I think kind of destroys, obviously they'd cared about, obviously they don't want the Germans in their area. They do not want the Germans in France, much less Paris. And Mm -hmm. so I think that, because I had someone once tell me like, oh, the French loved it. I was like, no, they did not open their city to welcome them in. They opened it to minimize yeah to minimize the destruction if they hadn't gotten out um i think sometimes people because there were places that welcomed hitler in um austria was you know they threw like parades and stuff um not but that was before everyone totally realized what was going on not i mean there's no excuse really but also like yeah Yeah. um they didn't understand the depth of yeah well hitler was also austrian so i think they had a little bit more um he wasn't german if y'all didn't know that um Hitler was Austrian. Um, But yeah, I think that has kind of altered the historiography around this event because their attempt was to save as much of Paris as possible so that it didn't get bombed or raided um, as heavily. But on June 22nd, the French signed their armistice surrendering to the Germans. um, And it officially falls into effect three days later. This is not received 
universally by the people, by the politicians. Uh, there's a lot of infighting among the French people about what the next move is, mm-hmm. who who should be taking control. Um, and I mean, if you think about everyone else on the other side of France, they're begging France not to give in. They're like, keep holding it, keep holding it. We'll, we'll try to send troops, you know, because they know that as soon as France officially gives in and Germany occupies it, they're kind of screwed. So... There are a lot of Allied soldiers still in danger here, as well as civilians during this time when these negotiations were going on. They're trying to make sure that they've gotten as many soldiers out as possible. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it doesn't, it's not always successful. There are incidents like the HMT Lancastria, which was sunk off the coast by German aircraft, killed somewhere between three and 6,000 people on board, making it one of the worst naval disasters in the history of the British naval forces. Um, wow, yeah. It's bad. Um, and being locked in place by the German invasion, water um, evacuations and other efforts are used to save soldiers all over the place, including Operation Ariel and Operation Cyclone that saved somewhere around 200,000 troops in June, as well as a civilian effort to save um, the populations by the um, Royal Navy coming in to the ports in Britain and uh, western parts of France. There's also the 51st Highland Division, where, unfortunately, over 10,000 men were taken as prisoners of war because they couldn't get out through Dunkirk in time Mm -hmm. for evacuation. Um, And it led to the capture of the highest-ranked British prisoner of war in that um, division. Mm -hmm. It was the highest rank that Germany ever got during the war. Yeah. Um, So, Patain, the guy who's kind of, like, taken over, I guess, in, in France... He managed to retain some influence and sort of remains as a kind of like a chief chief of state in Vichy and occupied and um in occupied France and they set up their own little like government their like proxy government the way uh-huh. they allowed the Germans allowed them to operate is weird it's very much obviously still under German influence and control it's one of those kind of things where you try to satiate your prisoners by making them think they have power mm. I kind of mm. think you know because this is kind of like I'm in charge but you're a part of me yeah the yeah good old Genghis contacted yeah it's very much that vibe um I mean because if you don't have military say in anything in the middle of your world war you don't really have a say in anything that's very true so yeah, <laughs> yeah. um they actually, surprisingly, this always surprised me. And I had to double check when I was writing it because I was like, no, I can't be remembering that right. Um, that French proxy government controlled like the southern half of France, except for the spaces occupied by the Italians. But originally, it also allowed them to keep their holdings in North Africa and their other colonized areas, which was always threw me off because mm-hmm. you don't want... You want satellites as many as possible in war because then you can attack from those satellites. Yes, they're hard to hold, but you you want colonies like you. Yeah, it's also like yeah. a resource pool. Exactly. Thing too. So it always kind of shook me or surprised me, I should say, that Germany didn't immediately like make them relinquish the power in those places. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, later they ended up, you know, because <laughs> Germany. Um, yeah, yeah. But. At anyway, that point, I, I feel like maybe they're just like, ah, we'll get there eventually. I'm kind of wondering if that's what it is. They were like, <laughs> eh, we'll just satiate them for now. They can yeah. hold on to their little, their little holdings and yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, feel better. Yeah. So 
there are three major parts to that armistice. The German refugees um, in France were required to be handed over to the German authorities. The provision was that the terms between France and Germany could be modified later with the Italians' input. Because so obviously Germany knew like, hey, the Italians are going to want to say in this later. Also, the Italians are like below you and they're going to start pushing south, like north eventually into your southern French area. So like we reserve the right to make modifications later if Mm -hmm. the Italians say so. And they wanted there to be a sort of economic barrier for the split of France, Um, which I'm sure they were probably like, thank goodness, because we cannot be literally just in a war torn area without our own economy. They end, I mean, certain political leaders from France they end up working with the Nazis but it's a very politically fraught situation some of them actively collaborate like are they're kind of like oh well we fell so I guess we're just gonna like jump on the winning train here Mm. um and being a proxy most of the civilians do not have a say in what's going on at all there are some people who are much more excited about working with the Nazis like Pierre Laval who ends up working his way into Hitler's kind of, like, trusted circle. I mean, he's a fascist Frenchman. Say that ten times fast. (laughs) And he saw the opportunity for power. He ended up having more input than Henry Pétain, which sort of left Pétain as a kind of, like, just figurehead instead of actively contributing. Mm -hmm. And this sort of remains the situation until 1942 when things start to go downhill a bit for the Axis powers. And Germany and Italy took over and the allies start to take over the major colonies in North Africa. So their, their armistice agreement did not hold. Eventually Germany and Italy were like, yeah, we like, we would like it now. We would like your land and your resources. Gimme. Gimme, gimme. Anyway. Um, it wouldn't be another two years though, that France itself actually gets liberated, um, at the invasion of Normandy in June of 1944. However, both Pétain and Laval end up running away to seek Germany's protection when Normandy's invasion happens, and no one can hide forever. So eventually they're both found and tried for treason, sentenced to death, all that, you know, all that jazz. Um, Only Laval was executed, though. Charles de Gaulle ended up changing Pétain's sentence to just spending life in prison, which is kind of insane to me, because this guy was, like, straight-up treasonous and helped Hitler, but Mm. whatever, I guess. Um, Maybe he knew someone. Yeah. And... It's kind of crazy because the fall of France sets the scene for the rest of the war. And it also means, though, that now that Germany's committed to tearing into France, they're fighting a two-front war. Yeah. They're fighting on both sides. Which, and as we all know. It's not It's not your best move. No. It's really not. It puts a huge strain on your resources. Yeah. To um, split them in half. Yeah. yeah. It's not... It's not great. Um... And there's a ton of articles and speculations and ideas about what would have happened if France France hadn't surrendered at this time. Mm. Um, it's really hard to know, and it's, it is impossible to know what would have happened if France hadn't surrendered yet, because there's so many moving pieces and parts in this mm-hmm. war. Like, there were, like, five fronts being yeah. fought in just what I described today. Mm-hmm. So you can tell that we can't really know, but if you're interested in it, there's some really cool speculations that help you understand a little bit more the dynamics Um, But I also cannot, you know, give you a full explanation of any of those because I want to keep this under an hour if possible. And I have a feeling I'm I'm starting to get towards an hour. Oh, no, we're at an hour. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. Um, 
but I mean, that was a long topic. So, yeah. And you did it. You, I mean, you're, you have a, I'll let you finish. No, no, that was it. Just that, that if you yeah. want to do more reading on it, you totally can. There were so many like offensive movements, defensive movements that when I was going through them, I was like, oh my God, I literally cannot talk about half of these. So that is my very dumbed down version of what happened and caused the fall of France and eventually the armistice of France that is on the anniversary of today. What's happening outside that my window? That is was done really well and I have some really great news. There's a very small puppy <gasps> outside your window. Where? If you want to look at it. I do. Hold on. We're going to pause. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. We had to break to see the puppy. Always break to see puppies. Very, very cute. It was. Um, um, well, yeah. Like I said, Kat, great job. I know that's you. A, a big topic. It and- was... Yeah. I'm sorry if I stuttered a lot through this one and hemmed and hawed a little bit. My brain was already a little bit shredded. Maybe this wasn't the best topic for a day my brain was shredded, but I really wanted to do it because it's an yeah. anniversary. So, yeah. Well, I think you did a good job. And the only way we're going to do World War II is in pieces. So, yeah. Oh, um, God, no. It would literally be a year-long effort for me to go through like, would, battle I mean, like by battle. Like you said, there's literal podcasts just, just about World for that. World War II. Yeah. Um, we're not one of them. So. <laughs> no. Um, and the funny thing is, I had... I was talking to someone once and they were, they asked about it and I was like, yeah, I do like comparative genocide. And they were like, oh, cool. And later they started asking me questions about World War II, like I should know. And I was like, I hope people understand the Holocaust is very different than World mm-hmm. War II. These are radically different topics. Do they inform each other? Yes. Yeah. People assume that since I know stuff about the Holocaust, that I know stuff about, stuff about World War II. And I'm like, Hitler's military tactics and his genocidal tactics are linked but very different and very so different. it's like kind of frustrating yeah i think it's it's interesting because i mean i you know how history is taught here but it's oh, very yeah. much presented as a singular event yeah yeah these things are the same thing and oh when in reality, i thought for a long time that world war Two was the holocaust oh <laughs> it's just no war it's just a bunch of people no, i literally no yeah. like i thought i thought well no it's like i thought they were fighting a war to kill each other like to mm. systemically kill each other like my public education did me dirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, it is It is weird, especially when you've been kind of, like, just taught. Like, this is, it takes, it's kind of like a, like a, you gotta reframe things in your brain. Yeah. But, like, yeah, they're they're not related. Well, I'm, obviously, they are related, but they're not the same thing. Yeah. Which is, so. they're very much related, but they're not the same. It's really interesting. Yeah. So, sorry I went over history. an hour. No, no, you're good. Well, I mean, we talked a little bit in the beginning, so you were only at, like, 55 minutes. I was really sorry. aiming to go like for 45 minutes though. So <laughs> I guess okay. the world war two topics are gonna, we should just always prepare for them to take you know longer what? than I expect. I think, I think that's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. Um, anyway, should we give our recommendations? For the oh movie? yes. Um, obviously as mentioned, mine's going to be Dunkirk. Dunkirk. I do love that movie. I do love any good Hans Zimmer music movie score. It's phenomenal. Honestly, very well made. Cinematography is gorgeous as well. So that's yeah. my recommendation. Nice. I, um, started and got caught up with Barry since we last yes. chatted. Oh my god. Probably a byproduct of me stressing out about my thesis. It's, it's um, not exactly the best stress show either. No. <laughs> the, it's really short. It's at three seasons now. I think the next episode or the last episode comes out today of season three. The season finale. So um Nice. They're only like thirty minutes long, so it's not like you know, I wasn't spending hours and hours and hours on it. But mm-hmm. Well, I would um, like to acknowledge that Peaky Blinders came out. I just can't recommend it because it's such a gory show that I don't feel comfortable recommending it here. Yeah, yeah. As with anything, you know, trigger war- check your trigger warnings. But um, Barry's also, it's not gory. It, it, it is, deals with some hard topics. It's, it's violent. A lot of people die. It doesn't focus as much on the violence that 
Peaky Blinders does. Yeah. Um, but well, Peaky Blinders is literally just a show about violence. Like, it's literally, yeah, literally just gangs. Like, literally. So. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, like, gang stuff in Barry. But, um, yeah, it, it's it's a really interesting show. I can't say that I've ever seen anything like it. Um, it's the, weird. The comedy in it is just so abrupt mm-hmm. <laughs> um but were you yeah. the one i was talking to about how it makes me think of bojack horseman a little bit yeah you mentioned yeah it. bojack is it's a whole different level but like yeah for some reason they barry feel the and same bojack barry and bojack are very similar characters yeah the shows are different yeah um obvious <laughs> yeah um but anyway i really enjoy it so if you're into that kind of stuff very dark comedy-esque not dark comedy and like the just making really just bad taste jokes but just like like it being a dark show and a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would recommend it, but yeah, like I said earlier, check your trigger warnings. That's just a good rule if you're if you have some sensitivities to anything, just yeah. check, check your trigger warnings. warnings before you consume any media if yeah. you can, you know. Um, but anyway, so I guess that means it's my turn. It is. Hit us. Not literally. <laughs> Pum the mic. <laughs> really loud pop. pop, pop. Um so today, Kat doesn't know how I'm doing today. Did you switch it? Uh, I didn't. Ha- well, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I forgot that I had Girl, it. you gotta tell me. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> anyway, today I'm doing Oscar Wilde. <gasps> yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Girl, so, how could you not talk? <sighs> I would be drinking out of my literary author's mug right now. Your literary author's? Shh. Yes, I have a mug for it. No, 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 no. Your literary author's? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> my uh i should say famous authors <laughs> what am i gonna do it's just it's just so it's like a it's a redundancy so i know just just talk okay talk so Valentina. oscar wilde as kat said is a literary author and he is known Stop. for the literature he has authored throughout his life um so his i will full punch name- you from across the room his full name is very Irish, so I forgive I forgive my my Americanness in this. So his full name is Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Wiles Wild Wheels Wild. That felt white even to me. <laughs> Irish people are white. Cat. I know, but the way you said that was almost Texan. You say like, it then. No, I, yeah, I'm exactly. not gonna try. Yeah, I think I, it was what you said. O'Flaherty. O'Flaherty. What? I can't do accents either, so it's like... That was good, that was good. Double, I, I applaud double it. Double bad. The effort was very, very well made. Thank you. <laughs> um, he was born October 16th, 1854 in Dublin. Um, see, the thing about Wilde is that he, from birth, was destined to have what can only be described as a flamboyant life. And I use that word knowing that he <laughs> was at least bisexual <laughs> he was open a, he wasn't open was he about it it was described as a um like an he open had an appreciation for like i mean he was open about his appreciation with men oh well like he was yeah, he publicly seen and he wrote about it like yeah, yeah. it's as almost it was, as out as you could get in it the time period said like no one ever said it but like everyone knew yeah he okay. wasn't hiding anything, well and hiding that's the thing anything. it's like the concept of coming out is obviously socially different in this time than now yeah and i doubt like he was concerned with being i mean he wrote about it so yeah he yeah yeah didn't probably didn't have to say it like we kind of conceive it to be now <sighs> yes yeah so i mean but he was married he did have a wife and two children and until his death 
um actually i think that he she died before him i'm not sure on that um but like he he loved her at least as a companion i think for most of his life so that's nice but anyway so from birth he was like destined to have this like really flamboyant life because his father whose name was william wilde was ireland's leading ear and eye surgeon who also happened to just have interest in archaeology, folklore, and the satirist Jonathan Swift, all of which he published books on. So he's just like an ear and eye doctor, and then also has all of these other things that he's just like spending time with and like just, you know, as pursuits, I guess. Hmm. He also was knighted, he was knighted for his work as a medical advisor for the Irish censuses. Um, so I guess he helped the government with something. So his official title is Sir William Wilde. Okay. Um, he also would found the St. Mark's op- oh, I can never say this ophthalmic hospital. So like I yeah stuff. no you got it um, yeah um, entirely at his own personal expense to it was basically a, a charity hospital that he funded completely oh, wow. by himself yeah um, his mother was equally so his father was just like very generous had a lot of interest obviously a very 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 intelligent man right Mm -hmm. his mother was the one that the kind of flamboyance comes down in so her name was jane francesco elgi that is a heck of a name i love that elgi (laughs) elgi it's e-l-g-e-e i love that i don't know why i really like that sorry um so she wrote a lot too and her pen name was speranza which um was, I guess, a drawn from a revolutionary poet and an authority. So, sorry, I'm getting mixed up. So her pen name was Speranza, and she, Jane, under this pen name, was very heavily involved, in, at least in the writing part, portion of the ideologies behind um, some of the Irish Ireland revolutions that are going on at that point. Um, she's like really involved in that. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. I know that Ir- Irish revolutionary history is it's messy and it's still happening. And yep. I am going to confess it right now. I know very little about it, which is something that I personally am a little remiss about because yeah. I, I would like to know more. I just haven't gotten to like getting to it is one of those things educate that myself on. I thought I knew I had like a decent grasp and it's No, it's what so, was I watching that made me It's so like it's probably Peaky Blinders. I was watching it was Peaky Blinders. Yeah. Um and then I was like, okay, I kinda have a grasp of this time period and then I was watching um Dairy Girls, which is not the same at all. No. But it made me realize how many like colonial effects like how much colonization uh-huh. still affects that part of the world because for some reason my brain they're like, still fighting over yeah, it. yeah my brain thinks like oh things are settled over there we're dealing with those issues in America and like yeah, South no. America and I was like no it's very much still going on in in multiple nationalities and stuff mm-hmm. and I was like okay I do not have a grasp of this like I thought I did yeah no it's it's super complex and it's been going on for a long, long time now. Um, so I'm just going to confess to that. So whatever revolutionary Irish revolution movements that are happening in circa 1850, she was very involved with those movements and she was a big, uh, poet about those topics. And she was a big proponent of the efforts itself. She also was considered an authority on Celtic myth and folklore and would publish a lot about those Mm. things under her pen name, Esperanza or Esperanza. Um, she also was, so her, his father is kind of described as like, not too great looking, kind of short, frail man, mm-hmm. but like he was super nice. So everyone liked him and like all of this stuff. 
His mother, however, was described as this, like, great beauty. Um, She was, like, described as, quote, statuesque. Um, She was six foot tall. And apparently had a freaking personality to match because she was very concerned with having what she wanted, what she called, like, an exciting life. She Mm. once stated, quote, I should like to rage through life. This orthodox creeping is too tame for me. So, like... This is definitely, if you know anything about Oscar Wilde, you're seeing why he is the way that he is if his parents are like this, you know? Yeah. Sorry, I keep knocking into my mic. I'm trying to text my mom. (laughs) Text your mom. It's okay. Uh, Oscar would also have two siblings, an older brother named Willie and a younger sister named Isola, or Isola, Isola. I'm not sure how that works. It's I-S-O-L-A. Oh, interesting. Um. So she was his younger sister. Unfortunately, though, she passes away at age 10. Um, And I left this in here because it was sweet. But he, it was said that among his belongings found after he died, um, that there was an envelope found with the lines, my Isola's hair, she's not dead, but sleepeth. Oh, don't make me cry right now. Yeah. And you know, Victorians with their hair. So that was obviously like very Mm -hmm. sentimental. Um. Because of his mother and father's interest in positions in society, he would grow up in a household that was constantly full of the who's who of Dublin. So artists, intellectuals, all that kind of stuff. His mother would regularly held a salon, which again is that like kind of meeting place of intellectuals. Just just come and talk to each other and like share ideas. And why don't we do that anymore? (laughs) We should do that. Should we host a salon, Kat? I want to. At one of the historic houses? I should. Could you imagine the intellectuals of this area meeting? No. Exactly. That's probably why we don't do probably it anymore. Probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> Maybe that's faded to the past for a reason. There would be a lot of alcohol consumed if we were to get all of the professors and our favorite people. <laughs> I think we'd run out of booze. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, so he was just constantly immersed in this like very intellectual and artistic lifestyle from the beginning. So it's it's really clear. And also, since his mother was so concerned with like you know having an exciting life, it's very clear that these kind of influences are what kind of created who he is later in his life. He was known as extremely intelligent and bright from kind of day one. He into- he attended the Portora Royal School at Inniskillen in Ireland, I believe, somewhere in Ireland, um, where he found his love for Greek and Roman studies. At that school, he won the top prize for a classic student in, e- in his last two years, And then he won the second prize during his final year. So, so I guess two years, like the last three years, he, the two first two, he Mm -hmm. won first place, but then his last year he won second place. So that probably was a blow to his ego. I'd be a little bitter. I would be too. I would be too. I'd be like, who the heck are you? I know. I was like, you know, they went to school Who do you think you are? (laughs) How dare you? Um, So he graduated from that school. Oh, sorry. I skipped a line. He graduated. Oh, so this first, his primary school, he graduated in 1871. He was awarded the Royal School Scholarship to attend Trinity College in Dublin, where he did really well as well. Um, in 1972, or 19, 1872, at the end of his first year, he placed first in the school's classics exams and received the College Foundation Scholarship, which is the highest award on honored or given to undergraduates at Trinity College. So he's He's doing good. He's, yeah, he's, he's a very, very good well. student. So he graduates Trinity College in 1874. 
and where he receives when he receives the Berkeley Gold Medal as Trinity's best student in Greek, as well as a scholarship for further studies at the Magdalen College in Oxford. <laughs> so very accomplished. <laughs> very accomplished. So he goes to Oxford, continues to good well to, to do well, um, and he studies classics and classical moderations. Um, and he, while he's at Oxford, he kind of starts dabbling in creative writing. And it doesn't, I mean, it goes well, but it doesn't go very far at this point in his life. So in 1878, which is when he graduated from Oxford, he um, enters his poem Ravenna into the Newdigate Prize or Newdigate competition. And he wins for the best English verse composition by an Oxford undergraduate. Oh, wow. So he's he very, does it on a whim. It's like very oh. accomplished. Okay. <laughs> um, he was extremely smart. Like, I think that's not something I really knew about him. Like, obviously he was like a really skilled author Mm -hmm. in the portrait of Dorian Gray and the plays that he writes. But like, I didn't think I knew like exactly how smart he was. Like this man was not just a talent for it, but like, like intelligent, like intelligent. Cause I was going to skip some of these prizes that I was like, okay, so he went to one, a bunch of prizes, but I think like just hearing like consistently, like, yeah, he He is sweeping categories. He does. Yeah. It really helped me understand him better, at least. Um, So I decided to leave those parts in. So around this time when he's, you know, going to his second undergraduate at a degree at Oxford, like you used to be able to do is just be a student for, you know, if you had money, at least. Must be nice. Must be nice. Um, So he starts to get really into the aestheticism movement. Do you know what that is? Not not, not as much as I should. Yeah. So it's kind of this thing. It's very closely tied, at least in my mind, to romanticism, mm-hmm. um, which romanticism is, you know, glorifying nature. Nature. And... Manifest destiny a lot yeah, of the time. It's, yeah. It's romanticism Exploration, is like nature, the link between humanity and nature. Yeah. Oftentimes. All that kind of stuff. So it's like that, but it's much less nature involved. Instead, aestheticism is I wrote this down because it was a good way that it was put. Where did I do it? Okay. So it is, quote, a theory of art and literature that emphasized the pursuit of beauty for its own sake rather than to promote any political or social viewpoint. So it's just really, like, enjoying the finer things in life for what they are and just really indulging in that. Okay. That's what asceticism is. And he starts to really, really take into that. And his pursuit of pleasure and many, many of his writings becomes his, like, number one priority. Like, he wants all things in life to be pleasurable. That's, you know, he's looking for the, like, only to experience, like, positive things and, like, beauty and art and all that stuff. This a, worthy, is, a worthy attempt. Yes. Yeah. Um not a bad thing, but also <laughs> maybe not the only thing you should be pursuing. Um, this comes from the teachings of the English writers John Ruskin and Walter Pater on centering the importance of art in life. And um, Walter Pater would actually really stress the aesthetic intensity by which life should be lived. So he was determined to follow Pater's urging to, quote, burn away, to burn always with a hard gem like flame. So, like, they really believe that, like, life should be lived to the nines. You know, you're indulging in everything and you're having all the finest yeah. things. And, 
you know, I guess I see feels that. Feels Bacchanalian. I don't know why. Feels what? Bacchanalian almost. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> you don't want to explain it to the class? No. Okay. <laughs> it, it's, it's just the whole, the whole, the way you're describing, like, the pleasure and, and you good? I'm trying. You're way far away from oh. the mic. Oh, sorry. The way you're just describing, like, a life of pleasure and it feels very, like, open and free. Yeah. 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 Um, it's just, it's, it's very much an upper class thing to pursue and for it to have like a movement called aestheticism. Like it's very, you're in a very privileged place to even be able to consider this kind of lifestyle, which Wilde was. He did have his financial difficulties. His father passed away and he left the family with no money. In fact, they had considerable debts. So every, like Wilde had to earn his own money. Um, So he did have, like, financial troubles, but he was, like, fully enmeshed in this whole aestheticism thing. Um, So he, you know, he lived for all of this stuff, and that came at great financial risk for him because he kept, like, redecorating all of his homes and stuff at great expense to himself. And they're like, dude, you can't afford this. So it really was more aesthetic, not so much, like, the party, like, high life. It's... It's aestheticism, it's art, and uh, yeah. Okay, because Bacchanalian, I guess. I mean, it was, it, it was the indulgence of like the party and high life, too. It, okay. was, it was everything pleasure, from what I understand. Okay, because Bacchanalian yeah. usually like it implies like drinking and revelry and partying and all of that. And so, yeah. like, that's kind of what it struck me as is like that aestheticism of like the time. Because, I, I mean, you get huge. It's so interesting how generations cope with trauma. Because yeah. you get, like, the Roaring Twenties after, like, the war. Everyone's just kind of, like, drunk and high for a good yeah. bunch of it. And yeah. then you you have, like, bouts of that throughout history. Like, generations of just, like, decadence and indulgence. Mm-hmm. And and you see, like, drinking spike or the temperance movement spike or something like that. It I just, mean, a lot it's of interesting it, to me that yeah. he's, like, real, really in the high life. I guess, I don't unless he was drinking, I guess it wouldn't really be, like, Bacchanalian. I don't know. But. I, think, I think you're right. I think I interpreted it as, like, okay, aestheticism. You're pursuing this, like, beauty and pleasure. Mm-hmm. So, of course, that would extend to, like, your... Your, like, sexual... Your everyday life. And your partying. Right? But I don't and, think... From what I saw, at least, I don't think that he was much of like a party, okay, partier. So I lied. It's so not Bacchanalian. It, it is. I think it's it, more just enjoying himself. It's just yeah. He he likes to look at pretty things and he likes to appreciate art and you know okay all of those things for what they are. So we're not talking uh, like roaring twenties having. I mean, time. obviously, he's pretty freewheeling because you know you got to be to be gay in eighteen seventy whatever. That's true. Eighteen eighty whatever. Um, yeah, part of this was. So he has a really famous quote where after he redecorated one of his um, rooms at Oxford, which um, resulted in his famous remark, quote, oh, would I that I could live up to my blue china. So he's like, this stuff is so gorgeous. I don't even deserve it, but I'm going to have it because that's what aestheticism is all about. It's just having fine things for the sake of having fine things um, and appreciating them. Hashtag capitalism. Yeah, he also, <laughs> um, it is it is like conspicuous consumption almost. Yeah. Except I don't think that it was with the bent of, you know, showing off your wealth. I think it was just purely right. to enjoy that wealth, um, and just you know enjoy nice things, which I can appreciate to a certain extent. Don't bankrupt yourself doing it, but like, yeah, have, have a good time. Have that nice bottle of wine you've been saving. Why not? Because if you keep saving it then you're just going to keep saving it. I did that with lotion once. 
<laughs> made me very sad. <laughs> I saved it until it had separated and it got gross, and I was very, very upset. Yeah, exactly. So if it's stuff like that is going to happen if you never use it. So you don't need a reason. The reason can just be to to do it, you know? Like, I'm going to make today special. Well, must be so nice to have that freedom. Well, if you have, like, a nice thing. No, I know. I'm I, I'm so, like, I'm so, like, retentive about, like, anal retentive about that that I will save stuff for years. Like, no, you're saving it for an occasion and an occasion. And then it, like, it's ruined by the time I'm, like, convinced yes. myself to do it. And I'm like, darn it. Yeah. So we're trying to avoid that, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, so, so, yeah. He also was known for his very um, bright and colorful outfits. He, the way he dressed was always... Uh, what people talked about he loved his fine fabrics and rich colors and velvets and you know all of this good stuff like he definitely dressed very well and it was all part of this kind of asceticism thing um and it wasn't just him it was this whole movement um and it kind of overtook london in the early 1880s and one article said that it was the rage and despair of literary london interesting the rage and despair yeah, I'm not sure what that means. I feel like you would know in context what that meant. It feels like, but I don't oh, know like, about literary London. It's all the rage. It's all the like, you know. It's it's everyone's doing it. It's all the popularity, but to our despair, like it's also yeah. like torturous to try and constantly be ahead of trends, to be, to wallow next to your friend who's more fashionable than you. It's mm-hmm. the bane of your existence because you constantly Keeping have up. to be worried about it. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, Wilde was able to establish himself in the social and artistic circles in London, specifically with his wit and just general personality. Like, people loved hanging out with him. He apparently was a really good time. Um, he was so enmeshed in these social, um, circles. I forgot to write this quote down, but it was a quote from the Prince of Wales saying that, um, basically that since I don't know Oscar Wilde, I don't know anyone. The literal Prince of Wales said that. And talking about, like, high society. That's so, like flattery. Yeah. Um, so, which, like, the Prince of Wales shouldn't have to be worried about, like, his position in society. But he was like, yeah. no, Oscar Wilde's the man to know. Um, so, he really named him, made a name for himself in these high society circles. So much so that the periodical Punch, which if you know anything about Victorian England, you, you've heard of Punch. Which is kind of, it's a, it's a magazine. Um, and it's really interesting. Have you seen anything about Punch? I've heard have of you it. Seen Punch? I've never seen one of them, but really, they have it at um, one of the libraries here on campus. They really, have old editions, and I got to look at it. Once. Really, yeah, it's a, it's definitely a satirical magazine. Interesting. It's, it reminds me a lot of Mad, mm-hmm. um, if you know what that is. The, I do. Yeah. yeah, the more more current version of this, but it was basically like a, a satirical magazine about high society that was. It was put together by a bunch of bros, and you could tell, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, he made a name for himself, so much so that they put him in this magazine. And um, it actually was making fun of him to, <laughs> to like, show that they... That creators of the punch were, like, this whole aestheticism thing is super unmasculine. Because how could you be so devoted to art and you're not a man? Blah, blah, blah. Whatever. Like I said, you can tell it was a bunch of bros that put it together. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Sounds like it. Yeah. He also was so uh, popular that there was actually a comic opera called Patience that um, two men by the name of Gilbert and Sullivan based one of the main character, Bunthorn, um, which is described as a a fleshy poet 
partly on Wilde. It was pretty clear that this was Oscar Wilde that they were doing. Um, and Wilde actually was like, <laughs> thought it was hilarious. And he wanted to reinforce his association with this character. And this is like a extremely, extremely popular play. So popular that it does a whole run in America. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so he thinks it's hilarious that he is like, they have made a whole play about where he's like this character in it. So he publishes at his own expense, um, a volume of poems in 1881 to kind of reinforce that like, yeah, this is me. I am that fleshy poet. Um, so he also, which also definitely reinforces his association with the play. He accompanies the American run of patients with a lecture tour of his own in the United States and Canada in 1882. Whoa. Yeah. So he goes and tours for nine months in North America, where he delivers 140 lectures in oh nine my months. God. <laughs> yeah. Just Dude. to go along with this play. <laughs> no. Yeah. Hard pass. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I admire it, but hard pass. Yep. Yep. So it's also a really famous quote by him that when he arrived in New York, he he gets to customs and he says, quote, I have nothing to, to declare but his, but my genius. Yeah. Humble much? I know. <laughs> I'm like, I, I want to hate him. I guess if you're Oscar Wilde. I want to hate him, but I like can't really because. I know. Like, okay, I'll give you a pass, Oscar. Yeah. I'd, like, roll my eyes. If I was, a, if I was like, his friend there, I'd be like, all right, buddy, let's keep it moving. Yeah. Um, even though he was obviously incredibly busy with lectures, he managed to meet with some of the leading American scholars and literary figures, including Henry Longfeller. Feller. Feller. <laughs> Talk about text and dance. Where did that accent. come from? I, I heard that one loud and clear across the prairie. <laughs> that Henry Longfeller man. What's his name? The Longfeller. Longfeller. <laughs> um, so Henry Longfellow, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and Walt Whitman. He especially appreciated Whitman saying, quote, there's no one on this great wide world of America whom I love and honor so much, so much that was in a letter that he wrote to Whitman. So that's pretty cool. Hmm. Um, when he got back from his nine month stint in America, he pretty much immediately started another lecture circuit of England and Ireland that lasted until the middle of 1884. Uh, this lecture, he kind of talked about his experience in America. I didn't see anything that talked about what he was talking about exactly in America. Probably just whatever he came yeah. up with. <laughs> um, but it was specifically to talk about like his experience traveling around America because to travel around America in 1883 is, I bet, an experience. Um, so through his lectures and his early poetry, he was able to establish himself as a pretty, like, basically one of the leaders of this aesthetic movement because he was like a super When you have that much social control, I feel like you could just, like, start your own movement, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, so... On May 29th, 1884, he would marry a wealthy English woman named Constance Lloyd. Together, they would have two sons, the first one named Cyril, born in 1885, and the second named Vivian, named, born, or born in 1886. Uh, and, I mean, I didn't see, at least in the articles I was reading, that's kind of, she was just like a blip. Like, okay, he mm -hmm. had a wife and two sons. Yeah, I don't um, hear them talk about much at all. No. But I did watch the Wild movie. Really? Yeah, today because I nice. had 
was procrastinating. <laughs> I figured, yeah. Um, and they actually depict her as, like, a lot. Like, she's actually played by the lady who plays uh, Lizzie in the 90s Pride and Prejudice adaptation, the BBC version. Really? Mm-hmm. That's who plays his wife. Interesting. Okay. Also, now that we're on the topic, Stephen Fry, who plays Oscar Wilde, I think is the perfect casting choice because he looks almost identical to him. I need to go watch this movie. It was pretty good. I had to rent it, but it was like a discounted rented for whatever reason. So hmm. eh, why not? It's only two bucks. Yeah, Stephen Fry. If you see Stephen Fry, or if you see Oscar Wilde, you're like, that looks like that one actor, dude. And that's who they cast as him. Um, anyway, uh, Jude Law is also in that movie. And I do love jo- Jude what Law. What is a stacked cast? I know. Um... So it's all the British actors. You know You know what I always say. There's only a handful of them. So they're just in everything. Um, so they, anyway, so I'm not exactly sure the whole story with his wife. The movie seems to present that they had a pretty amicable relationship throughout his life. Um, and from what I was seeing in the articles, the movie did do a pretty good job, I would say, with oh, his life story. We love seeing that because some don't do justice. Yeah. Um, so, you know. If if it's representing the rest of his life well, I feel like it would also represent the relationship with his wife well. But again, I can't speak to that. Um, about a year after they got married, Wilde was hired to run Ladies World, which was a English magazine for ladies that had been once really popular, but had kind of fallen out of fashion. So he is running this and he basically revitalizes the magazine by expanding it to deal to quote deal not merely with what women wear but what but what whoa but with what they think and what they feel the ladies world this is a quote from wild uh, should be made the recognized organ for the expression of women's opinions on all subjects of literature art and modern life and yet it should be a magazine that men could read with pleasure so he's basically like yeah this ladies world magazine is failing because women don't care about the stuff mm. you need to like actually include stuff that they want to read and also you're cutting yourself off by limiting it to only women to like let's talk about like this should be academic enough or whatever bs it gives me that tiktok for, like, audio like, this is modern feminism <laughs> from mean Girls. yeah <laughs> um so that's so he like does really well and he brings it back to life in 1888, we kind of see the beginning of a period in his life that is just like really where most of his famous, famous stuff comes from. It's like a seven to 10 year period where he's just writing and producing all of these great works, of course, that we still know and love today. Um, this includes The Happy Prince and Other Tales, which is a collection of children's stories. In 91, he published Intentions, which is an essay collection about the tenets of aestheticism. He also, in that same year, would publish his first and only novel, The Picture, picture, bleh, the picture of Dorian Gray, which, of course, is incredibly famous. Um, have you read that? Picture of Dorian Gray? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have too. I've also seen the movie with Ben Barnes. It wasn't... Reco- oh, Ben Barnes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I've said it on here before. I have a thing for Ben Barnes. Yeah. Yeah. I know. That's why I was like, I gotta mention him. I Thank watched you. it when I was... I watched it when I was, like, 14 because I was like, oh, that's that guy from Narnia. And then I was like, what the hell is What's happening? <laughs> I can't imagine watching that when I was 14. I would be so confused. I was so confused because I don't know what the portrait of Dorian Gray is when I'm 14 years old. No. So I was just like, 
what? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, which, funnily enough, that apparently was a very controversial novel in its day. That doesn't actually surprise me. Yeah. I haven't read in, in a long time, but... Um, the fact that... Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it was quite scandalous. Yeah. Um, he also would write Lord Arthur Seville's Crime and other stories and House of Pomegranates during this period. And also in this period was his plays. Um, <laughs> and again, if you're in the theater world, you know Oscar Wilde's plays. Uh, his first play, Lady Windermere's Fan, opened in February 1970. Er, 19. Why was I going to say 1972? 1892. Because we always do this. <laughs> um, and it did very, very well. Um, so well, in fact, that it would encourage Wilde to adopt playwriting as his kind of main form of writing from that point forward. Um, so that's probably why we only have one actual novel for him. Over the next few years after this, he, of course, produces his other great known plays, um, which were witty, highly satirical comedies, mainly of, um, like, high society England and all that stuff. Among these, his, no his most notable were A Woman of No Importance in 1893, An Idle Husband in 1895, and his most famous, The Importance of Being Earnest in 1895. Which I will not, I, it's cliche, but it's my favorite one. I have never read it. Oh, really? No. The movie. There's a movie adaptation that's actually really good. Really, really well done. That. Yeah. Well, I was talking to my friend who is a theater person, and she was telling me that like when they learned about this play in like her theater history class, that um, usually at the when they would perform it in the mm -hmm. 1890s, um, there would be like because it's a it's a satire on high society. But apparently, it was also one big gay joke. <laughs> it, if you watch, yeah, if you read it well, or watch it, like, it's she was like apparently men that were known to have you know tendencies were called were called earnest. Like, oh, that's a very earnest man. So the fact that it's called the importance of being earnest, interesting, is in and of itself. I didn't know that. that like, yeah. it's actually a play on the words. I'm going to uh -huh. go rewatch it or read it. I know. And she said that, like, when there would be performances, there would be, like, the high society crowd, you know, like, the primary supposed audience for it, you know, and they'd be laughing at all the satire about high society and how ridiculous everything is and blah, blah, blah. Um, but then in the back of the theaters, there would be, like, the gay audience <laughs> yeah. that would be laughing at okay. the gay jokes that just went over everyone else's, everyone head. else's head. Sneaky. Isn't that, I like, love it. Be so That'd be fun. If I could time travel, I would time travel to go see this play. It's because like, um, it would be really cool. You know how uh, it's never mind. Yeah. But it's, yeah, yeah that would be iconic. And yeah. I would love a show like that where it just, it's better if you're gay and you're watching it because yeah. then, well, then it they get me... something more out of it instead of everything being catered to straight people for right. once. Right, yeah. And, well, it kind of reminds me that, like, the, the like, Pixar movie thing where it's, like, they put jokes in that you'll get when you're older. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, mm -hmm. only certain audiences will get. And that's very much what he was doing. And, again, I just think that, like, shows his skill as an author to be able to cater to two completely different audiences while making sure that one audience didn't even notice or yeah. know that, you know. It takes a very finesse mm -hmm. style, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so around 1891, we're going to back up a few years, Wilde meets a man named Lord Alfred Douglas. And this is kind of the beginning of the end for him. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, unfortunately. Wilde 
this is not the first man that Wilde is has been in a relationship with. The movie and one of the sources I was looking at um, talked about his a man that would go on to be his literary executor by the name of Robert Ross. It's pretty well believed that they were in a relationship at one point. Mm. So this is like not the first, you know, male love interest that Wilde has had, Mm -hmm. but it is the most significant in his life. Okay. So Alfred Douglas is described as this like very traditionally stereotypically attractive man with like blonde hair, blue eyes, and it's all of this stuff. Um, What's really interesting is Wilde himself seems to be really concerned with like the youth and he seems huh. that, like, the youth have, like, this freedom that, like, when you age out of it, like, you're never going to experience it again. Not youth to where, like, children, but kind of, no, like... No, I mean, like, I don't want to die. I don't want to get old. I want to just right. revel in this forever. Yeah. Uh-huh. Kind of, like, early 20s vibe. Yeah. You know? And so, for him, Alfred was kind of this pinnacle of, like, youth and beauty and all of this stuff, which are characteristics that were very attracted to Wilde. So, like, Wilde was, you know, all in. However, at least in the way that the movie portrays him... Douglas himself was not as committed to Wilde as Wilde mm-hmm. was to him. So they, like, you know, they get together. They have this multi-year-long um, relationship. It's kind of on and off. It's fraught with a bunch of stuff. I mean, obviously, they're a gay couple in 1890s London, so that comes with its own set of burdens and everything. Um, but they're together. And... Um, on February 18th, 19, 1895, Douglas's father, who is the Marquis of Queensbury, got wind of their relationship and affair. Um, and he, ha- he had previously, but so he had been suspecting for a while. But on this day, he leaves a calling card at Wilde's house addressed to, quote, Oscar Wilde, posing Somdomite, which is a misspelling of, of sodomite. sodomite. Yep. Yep. Um, Even I picked up on that, and I'm terrible with um, <laughs> anagrams. Yeah, it's so fascinating because you can actually see the calling card that he has written, and it's like, like it's awful there? handwriting. Like, you can go like what? on the Wikipedia article, and you can see okay. the actual calling card. I'm digging now. Um, and for at least how the the movie, which again I'm inclined to believe because it seemed like they were pretty accurate with a bunch of this stuff. The father was this kind of tyrannical figure. And I do think that's accurate because I saw that in a lot of articles um, to Douglas and was very controlling and was actually really discontent because he perceived that Douglas's relationship with Wilde was the reason why Douglas lost focus on his studies and instead chose to pursue this like life of leisure. That of course, since Wilde is this like main guy of aestheticism he's seen as this like, you know, So it pleasure. wasn't so much the relationship as just the person that Wilde was. It was both. Okay. I think it was definitely both. Um, I think the father didn't like that his son was in a same-sex relationship and used all of these things and the fact that it was a same-sex okay. relationship to, like, justify him not Oh, liking. okay. It was, like, the both. The, it just justifi- yeah. You feed one off the other justification. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, all in all, did not approve. I did see one... One source that I was looking at say that the Marquis of Queensbury was actually the man who set in place the rules for boxing. 
that like standardized the boxing rules so that's a fun fact huh. about this guy that's really specific <laughs> i know okay. i know um but yeah so he he doesn't like he does not like wild and he had been kind of like calling him like you know saying all these things about wild around town calling him a sodomite to people but like they never had physical proof so the reason why that calling card is so important is because it provides physical proof that okay he's calling wild a sodomite and now they can sue him for libel which they do so i saw two different kind of accounts of how of this happened um and i guess it really depends on your opinion of douglas and his role in Wilde's life, like what side of the story you're going to agree with. Mm -hmm. Um, Some article said that, you know, this comment from um, his boyfriend's dad about calling him sodomite was so like, so interesting. It was so upsetting to Wilde that he himself chose to pursue the libel suit. However, most sources seem to state and like kind of agree that it was Douglas that urged Wilde to do this. Because Douglas did not like his father and basically wanted to see his father, like, put in his place. I mean, it's hard to take that to such a public level, but yeah. I can see it. Like, being yeah. one of... I mean, like, I don't want to own up. Yeah. Like, no. And I... From what I feel, I feel like his father was, like, a very controlling and, you know, abusive yeah. and all this stuff. Man, so, like, it would be warranted that Douglas would want this to like okay like we gotta you know we can move on from here Mm -hmm. however unfortunately like i said this is kind of the beginning of the end for wild um so they chose to sue him for libel the trial would begin in march of um 1895 so just about a month after he received the the calling card um queensberry and his lawyers I don't want to say unfortunately, because it's not unfortunate that they have a wealth of evidence. Yeah. However, it is unfortunate, unfortunate. for Wilde. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they pulled homoerotic passages from his literary works, as well as his, his love letters to Douglas. Um, and, like, they had proof. Like, okay, yeah. you want to sue us for libel? Then say, is this yeah. wrong? Like, yeah. you're writing it about yourself. However, um, <laughs> uh, so... Sorry. Okay. Let me back up. So because they had all of this wealth of like proof that no, we can prove that you are quote unquote a sodomite, you know, that Mm -hmm. you're claiming is libel because libel is of course saying something untrue about someone. Um, the case gets dismissed. However, all of this evidence that was used to dismiss the case does now mean that he gets arrested on charges of quote gross indecency ah, because they suck. like the government has seen proof that wilde is a homosexual yeah or at least engages in homosexual acts which is of course illegal, illegal at, the time. at the time yes so um he is facing trial again this time for like actual jail time and not just a suit you know a civil suit um and he is told to flee to france by like basically everyone um and he chooses not to and he stays and faces his fate in England. So he was arrested in order to stand trial. Um, just basically like a month later. So they try him in 1895. And he, it was said that he testified brilliantly. Like he really... When you're that good of a writer, I feel like you have to be a really eloquent speaker as mm-hmm. well. And was able to defend himself well. But the jury failed to reach a verdict, which mean, which led to a retrial 
in which he was found guilty and sentenced in May of 1895 um, to two years at of hard labor. Um, and this was really, really taxing um, in the movie. It's he's it's has a scene where he's given advice by his lawyer, I guess it was, but he was like, the lawyer said, it said that um, men of our stature can only survive about a year of hard labor. So if they give you the full sentence, like, chances you're, are you're not going to make it. Yeah. That is, I, I can't get on that soapbox right now. Sorry. Continue. Yeah. yeah. Um, it seems like not as harsh of a punishment as you would expect for, you know, such a homophobic society. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, it, it's not good either. Yeah, obviously not. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he serves most of his sentence at the Reading Jail, which is the old spelling of jail, the G-A-O-L, which pisses me off. <laughs> I never knew it used to be. Really? You've never seen that? J-A-O-L? G-A-O-L. You've never seen jail written like that? No. Really? What the? Yeah, it's like the old English way of spelling jail. No, I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. I guess, you know what, I do consume a lot of like paranormal content. I was about to say. And so yeah. they're always talking about old jails. <laughs> Jail. J- Joel's. Gales. Goals. Gales. Goyles. 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 The reading Goyle. So while during his time in prison, he would write a long letter to Douglas that would be actually po- published pos- posthumously um, as De Profundis, in which he... Like, basically, this is Douglas for encouraging him to pursue the libel suit. Um, so he's, like, super upset at Douglas for, like, pursuing him to pursue the libel suit. It also states that, like, you distracting me has prevented me from, like, um, and you, like, stopped me from pursuing my literary career, blah, blah, blah. Like, basically, I'm pissed at you. Like, now that I have separation from you, I'm right. realizing, like, how toxic this relationship was. Which... Knowing that, that, yeah, which knowing that really, that really, really changes it, honestly. But well, when if you've seen the movie, they really depict Douglas as a very toxic person in wildlife, <laughs> and I was kind of wondering why. But when I, you know, did my notes on this deep profundus part, like I was like, that really puts in perspective, like why they made those choices hmm. to to make to paint him this way, yeah, him as that way. Um, so it's it's really interesting, but yeah. So like in in the movie, they have like they have his wife come visit him, and she's like, you know, you just you have to promise me one thing, like you'll never see him again because like people in his life were like he is bad for you, He's, like they knew before he did, mm-hmm. which is always hindsight's twenty twenty. But yeah, yeah. So he does survive his stint in prison in May of 1897. He is released. Um, However, because he's been in prison for the last few years and his financial status was already kind of, you know, not fantastic before that, he was bankrupt. He is essentially, I mean, he's not literally exiled to France, but essentially he knows that he will never be able to find his place in English society again. Um... So he goes to France hoping that, you know, he can, one, escape the criticism of the English, and two, that he can, like, kind of restart his career as a writer. But for the rest of his life, he was only able to produce one more work, which is The Ballad of Reading Jail, which was published in 1898. Hmm. Um, And in it, he kind of reveals his concern for 
what is very humane prison conditions because if you think jails are bad now, which they are. Even worse that yeah. Yeah, it's, I think. Worse, Times 10. Yeah, I think it's worse than, like, most of our modern minds can, like, comprehend. Yeah. Um, so he, basically, while he was in France, it was said that he kind of bounced around, couch surfed for a while. He... I mean, if he had, if he was such a socialite that he still had a lot of those friends, I'm willing to bet that yeah. he, mm-hmm. even when he, he was he couch surfing, it was um, more lavish couches than yeah. I would ever oh, dream of. absolutely. Um, and apparently uh, George Bernard Shaw would say that he, you know, despite all of these troubles and literally being in prison, he still maintained his, quote, unconquerable gaiety of soul that sustained him. Um, and, hmm. yeah. So during his time as France, he was visited by, you know, really loyal friends from England, including Robert Ross, who I mentioned earlier, who would become his literary executor. Um, and he also was briefly united with Douglas for about three months. However, it did not last. I do think that Wilde finally, uh, that separation caused him to like realize like, okay, you're not good for me. Yeah. And unfortunately, he would die suddenly of acute meningitis brought on by an ear infection on November 30th, Ooh. 1900. I knew he got sick, but, like, I didn't know it was meningitis from an ear infection. <laughs> that terrifies me because guess who gets a lot of ear infections? I was about to say, Cal, don't think too into this. <laughs> like, don't oh. get paranoid. <laughs> I better start living lavishly <laughs> if I'm going to be the next Oscar Wilde and die of a meningitis brought on ear infection, whatever. Um, so he was 46 when he died. Um, so that is... Oscar Wilde. I do have a few more notes about post his life, but he it was definitely a whirlwind life. Obviously, we're still talking about him today, and he is still, you know, touted as one of the greatest minds of the Victorian era, and we love his plays and books and all of that stuff, so he definitely made a name for himself, even though his life was not that long. So, he was initially buried in the cemetery... I'm not even going to try to do French today. I, I had to struggle through the Aisne River. <laughs> the Cimetière de Bagneau. Uh, oh, sorry. Bagneau. 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 Outside of Paris. Um, however, in 1909, his remains were disinterred and transferred to the Père Lachaise Cemetery, which was inside his city. Um, his remains were moved because he had it tomb commission that was finished by robert ross he commissioned this tomb and um so, so when they like finished it they moved his remains inside of that um fun fact about his tomb it depicted this like angel man like a male angel like typical male angel figure with wings um that did have fully intact genitals they um someone vandalized the genitals i have no doubt and they have never been recovered a replacement set of genitals was put in place and in order to protect them (laughs) the city of paris went in and cleaned off the lipstick marks of the genitals and then put up a glass like plexiglass partition so that people couldn't get to (laughs) to his tomb (laughs) i shouldn't laugh at that but it's really funny (laughs) so fun fact i I was just reading about his tomb. I was like, oh, oh, wow. Oh, this is still going. Um, Wow. Interestingly enough, Robert Ross, his literary executor, asked for a small compartment of this tomb to be made for his own ashes, which were transferred in 1950. So he's buried with Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't... 
I, I don't know, if, know enough about their relationship to have any thoughts on that. But I know, I can't speak happened. to it, but it, 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 it gives me a little bit of an ick. It does. But I don't, we don't know if we in don't those know, last few yeah, years, if they, they reconciled and, well, yeah. if, like, they made, mm, I don't know. Okay. I don't know you either. Know, I, I, I don't can't know. say anything. But I know. I know. Um, so in 2017, Wilde was among the estimated 50,000 men who were pardoned for homosexual acts under the um, Policing and Crime Act of 2017. So when they, you know, officially made yeah. homosexuality not illegal, yeah. they're like, we're going to pardon all these people that we arrested. We should probably and apologize. And- yeah. Um, even though I don't, you're dead now. It doesn't mean anything. I guess we're sorry. I hate people. <sighs> um, so on February 14th, 1990, 19- 1995, I was correct that time. He was commemorated with a stained glass window at the Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey, which I didn't know was a thing, but apparently it was. In 2014, he was um, one of the inaugural honorees of the Rainbow Walk, which is a walk of fame in San Francisco, which includes notable LGBTQ+, from who have made, quote, significant contributions to their field, so that's pretty cool. Obviously, he has been the subject of numerous, numerous biographies since his death, both by historians and by some of his closest friends. I feel like they were like, this dude, we got to write down about yeah. us knowing him because this dude is going to, you know, live what on. Too, and like, you, he wrote, so I'm sure that you could, you know, psychoanalyze his writings and get sources oh, from that. so much. But there's so, so it's so helpful, though, him. to have other people's accounts as well, because mm-hmm. then you know, like, was it just him who thought highly of himself or did everyone think highly of him? You know, I think it's pretty much like. People that was that was just him. an example. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. No, but just like to, to since you you know mentioned it, like yeah. I do think like people genuinely enjoyed his company. Um, I mean, he wasn't the richest man, so he wasn't in society for that reason. Like mm-hmm. he was kept around for the company, which I think says a lot. Um, the earliest memoirs, of course, but were written by his friends, including Lord Alfred Douglas, who would write two books about his relationship with Wilde. The first one came out in 1914. Um, which is called Oscar Wilde and Myself, which was believed to have been, or which was largely ghostwritten by <laughs> another author, <laughs> which doesn't surprise that, me about that. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like if you're going to write an intimate, about your intimate relationships, you should um, maybe put some effort in, but okay. Yeah, but here's the thing. Um, this was not a flattering novel about Wilde, and it's believed to have been a vindictive reaction to Douglas's discovery that the De Profundis letter was meant for him. So he was like, you're going to publish this letter about me posthumously? Screw you. And so he's, I'm going to slander all of your stuff. Mm, And he was like, "Mm." Um, however, both, um, Douglas and the ghost author did say later that they regretted their work. And in 1939, which was about six years before Douglas died, he would publish a book called Oscar Wilde, a summing up, um, which he was much, much more sympathetic to Wilde. So I think that 1914 book was definitely just a, like, you know, he was a little hurt. He was a little bit hurt. You, he can get over it. Someone called him out. Yep. Yeah. In 1954, his son Vivian would publish uh, his memoir called Son of Oscar Wilde, which recounts the difficulties of Wilde's wife and children that they faced after his imprisonment. Yeah, I'm sure that was really rough, like the the yeah. social change in yeah. your life after your father's convicted of something that shouldn't be a crime, but is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the most famous biography written by like a historian who didn't know him about Wilde was Richard Elman um, in 1987 wrote just the biography Oscar Wilde, 
he posthumously won a books critics which blah, 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 a books critics circle award in 1988 and a pulitzer prize in 1989 so, like very well received biography on this and this is actually the book that was the basis for the 1997 film wild which is directed by brian gilbert starring stephen fry as oscar wilde and jude law as douglas so if you're interested i enjoyed the movie i'm probably gonna go watch it not not now but like you know i'm probably gonna put it on my list no it's i would say it's a pretty good plus you know it's a period piece so that's always fun um who doesn't love a good costuming period piece there's my shoulder it didn't it didn't go out i felt it okay i felt it coming i kind of i was kind of ready for that one yeah so i would recommend the movie from what i saw at least it seems to be a pretty accurate representation of his life if embellished a little but what movie isn't um and to end i wanted to say this quote from oscar wilde saying quote we are all in the gutter but some of us are looking at the stars so i thought that was a nice i like that yeah so i don't like being in the gutter but at least we're all in the gutter together yeah Mm-hmm. I was like, that's that's true. So I like. That. I mean, like Kat said, he was a writer, so we have dozens and thousands of quotes from him. But I like that. I one, like so. that one. That one's good. Anyway, I also ended up talking for <laughs> about fifty minutes, which I was not expecting because I only had three and a half pages of notes. Well, we'll let guess... him go pretty quickly then. Well, um, but I'm actually really glad that you covered that today and that you covered it as well as you did. Thank I'm you. impressed you got all that out of three pages of notes i also only did like four pages of notes and usually that takes me like 45 that would take about 45 minutes yeah it's and not that long i think we were i think it's we because... both just chose topics that need some elaboration yeah i also watched the movie on it so i true. think i was able to true you know add some at least i didn't just watch the movie i watched a lot of other uh, things yeah. but like i i made i had time to build context which i thought was yeah it's always helpful well you did a great job and i've always wondered i always think about you know his famous supposed last words it's like um it's either me or the drapes one of us must go Mm -hmm. like i don't even know if that's true it's just like that old like folk tale yeah um, about oscar wilde but and like other than his writing i honestly didn't know as much about his life so like i mean i knew he was you know sent to jail for homosexuality but i didn't know like the extent of it yeah Yeah. exactly like or that there's like a whole Bible or, why or yeah, yeah, all of that stuff. So yeah. that's like really interesting. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. And I was happy to do it. So. I'm glad. Um, well, we hope y'all were happy to hear it as well. Um, if you have other topics that you would like to hear from us, um, you can briefly tweet at us at T-I-N-A-H-L podcast. Or you can longly email us at this is not a history lecture at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, please, please, please rate us wherever you can. I know we say this episode, episode, but it's true. That's the number one way you can help us. Um, and every review you leave is one more pat on the back that I give Cal when she turns in her thesis. Thank you. Thank you. Except I won't because she doesn't like really being touched. So I, I won't like hug, like pat you that much. I mean, you could pat me on the back. But okay. More, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> anyway. So yeah. Um, until next time, we know there's a lot going on in the world, but if you can stay safe, stay healthy. And, Take a minute to breathe. Yeah. And we will be back with with you with more history for you next week. And in the meantime, just a reminder that this has not been a history lecture. Bye. Bye.